Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Susanna Lebron bombed the HSC, but is now the CEO of YMCA New South Wales. She's led thousands of employees in roles with Qantas and Sydney Trains, and now with YMCA, without having a degree. She wants young people to know that your HSC results don't define you, and you don't need to fall through the cracks like she could have. She initially worked for 21 years with Qantas in customer service and experience roles, and through this background is of the strong belief that customers should be at the heart of everything you do in a workplace. In her role as Deputy Secretary of the Customer Service Division of Sydney Trains, her team improved the satisfaction levels from 78% to 90%, and she was named one of the 50 most influential women in the public sector. She believes if you can't follow Plan A, what's your Plan B? She also acknowledges the huge role her husband Bradley paid as being the primary carer of their children and couldn't have done what she has achieved without his support. Susanna has some amazing messages to share. Enjoy. It's my pleasure to welcome Susanna Lebron to the Caring CEO podcast. Welcome, Susanna. Thank you. Thanks, Graham, for having me. Susanna, what does care in the workplace mean to you? Regardless of where you sit in an organisation, the roles and responsibilities that you have to always be present be authentic, be a little bit vulnerable, but be in the now. Um, I think when you truly care for a moment, a situation, a person, a team, is when you really stop and create that connection. And I've seen you've done a lot of customer service roles, senior customer service roles in the past. How does care apply to customers? I personally don't think it's any anything different. I think when uh, customer service is done well and considerate, responsive, proactive, reactive is when a person actually connects with the moment and the situation that the customer might be in, uh, whether that is an experience you're trying to create in a really positive way or responding to a difficult situation. When you get uh, when you get an outcome that is successful, both people is when someone has stopped and really cared for the situation present in front of them. Yeah, fantastic. I saw that uh, you had an article published about you called I Bombed the HSC, ah. now, now I'm CEO. Could you tell me a little bit about the background about that? Uh, it's actually, I'm actually really proud about that article because I hope that there are people that can read it and relate and maybe shift gear or reconsider maybe their mindset on what they can and can't do. Um Interestingly, it was only six months into the role, I think, at the time, um, my corporate affairs person uh, wanted to unpack my story like most corporate affairs want to do, so they get ready for all the other things that happen, you know, around media and whatnot. And she just went, hang on a tick, is this really your backstory? And I went, yeah, it is. And, and, And so for her, she just said, this is the right time for HSC students at the time pre-COVID that would probably read this article and think, yep. 
I even though I might have obstacles in front of me or challenges um, or predetermined what I can and can't do by external influences or people, I actually can get through this and I don't have to fit the traditional path. But you don't know that at the time, which I think is quite something I often look back that, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing. But at the time, I had no idea what that future looked like. I just kept working through, enjoying, challenging myself, reacting to adversity um, and responding to challenges, but never really ever thought that this is where I'd end up one day. Yeah. Yeah. You you had a very challenging teenage years. Would would you mind just sort of sharing for the listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable now to share that. I also think at the time I didn't think it was hard, but there are definitely moments as I got through and became a parent, I was resentful for what happened and why I had challenges. And by no means are my experiences anything that I know so many young Australians are going through. But I'm probably just one example of many um, and definitely, as I said, not the, the most vulnerable ones that I unfortunately experience now with the people we support. But, you know, unfortunately at the time, you know, parents divorce, life changes, my amazing father, shift worker, um, he juggled his job to keep um, uh, caring responsibilities for his three young children. I at the time was uh, 11 years old. Very unusual for a man in the, you know, the late 70s, early 80s to take on that role. So I think Mm. there's your first role model for me. Hard Mm. worker from Germany, came out here when he was 21 and but cared for his kids unconditionally and wanted them to be the best. Unfortunately, due to work circumstances, he uh, moved to Queensland in year 12 And at the time, there wasn't an option for me to go with him. And unfortunately, I didn't feel comfortable to also go with him just due to um, the relationship he was in. And so I made the decision to stay. And unfortunately, that also meant that I didn't really have a proper home. My mother had had a second marriage, was pregnant with her fourth child, so uh, uh, my half-brother. And um, I had a grandmother and I was fortunate to be involved in a relationship at the time. So I flitted between Camden, Liverpool and Ryde and went to school in Concord and juggled two casual jobs at the same time because I didn't have a way to provide discretionary money for me to do the things that you need as a a young woman and and to also have a little bit of a life and just Mm. some of the net basic necessities. I didn't really have access to ongoing money, so casual work was important. Mm. Mm. And that boyfriend became your husband, probably, right? And, <laughs> yeah, and I know. <laughs> still, still there and uh, obviously. Oh, he's well and truly still here, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, he's an amazing individual, Graham. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now and, and have, you know, my life and the life that we've created as a family without him, 100%. Mm. And how did your career evolve from bobbing the HSC to now being the CEO of the YMCA New South Wales? How did, how did that happen? I, I wish I could tell you the exact <laughs> way that that happened. Um, the key attributes or what makes me tick, there has been a constant and I've realised that now And I think every journey or every opportunity that I've been afforded or applied for, there's always been these three things that have connected me to it. And one of them is people. 
I thrive when I'm part of a team, so more in my early years of employment, part of a team um, for a purpose. I love customer service and I actually don't mind the tough stuff in customer service. And to be strategically involved in something, to be visionary, to be creative. Um, if those three things play in my world, and when I think about starting off as a trainee waitress, that was my title at the Opera House, my first full-time job two days before my year 12 formal. <laughs> Every journey I took along the way always had something that I could play around in. And when people said, Susanna, we've got this thing over here, we think you can do it, I always would say yes probably panicked on the way to getting over there, but 90-day plan would be churned out and I'd be like, yeah, let's do this. And there were definitely times at Qantas, I mean, I was there for 21 years, where there were curveballs thrown at me. And I do believe that my 21 years at Qantas was an amazing apprenticeship because I just moved around so differently. All of that accumulated in real strength around leadership and what I value and what I don't you know, don't quite like about certain things. Um, and those other three things I spoke about and so that evolved into, I'm going to say, I, I felt like I fell into the CEO role. I wasn't mm. looking, but mm. there was an alignment. When the call came, I went, this is actually an accumulation of everything and my mm. purpose, which is about successful young people, back to the story around what happened with me growing up, I want to be able to have a why that young people can come to and seek that guidance and support, um, which I didn't have available to me. Yeah, and I see that uh, that's an area you're really passionate about is is helping young people that may not have had the best start and mm-hmm. know that it's not, you know, predefined. And uh, I, I really love that message because I know there is such a emphasis about HSC results, thinking that it's and, – and, and schools perpetrate this by saying, you know, it's going to define your life. And <laughs> It is just so untrue. It is just so ridiculous. And, mm. you know, having been in recruitment for 15 years, I, I just, it's always fascinating to see decisions people make and why they make them. And, uh, you know, it's it's very much my experience that uh, you can really navigate something that is really meaningful for you and also make a great contribution in, in the workplace and in, in our personal lives as well. 100%. 100%. I, you know, I think about what I would have hoped had been role models at school and that's really the formative years of year 9, 10, 11 and 12. And back then, you know, I'm 50, back then it was all about, you know, university and if you did not fit that criteria, you didn't have a conversation with anyone. Mm-hmm. And that 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 is not on. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, you know, I've got a few teachers in my family and friendship group and they I believe they're exceptional, but I think that's still the problem today and I I get really annoyed about that. I get really annoyed about limitations and bias that people put on young people. Mm. You need to listen to them. You need to engage with them. Um, And the soft skills are so critical. And, you know, as you say about being a recruiter previously, I warm to someone when they talk about who they are and the skills that they bring from a soft skills point of view, view. The technical stuff, give or take, you know, the traditional technical skills that nurses and, you know, teachers and, you know, engineers need, soft skills we all need. Mm. Um, and we should be here as uh, as nurturers for young people to show them how you can safely acquire those soft skills. Mm. That's not done. It's very rare. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember I remember saying, you know, part of the recruiting process, and it's probably a bit less so now, but, you know, a degree might get you in the door, but then it counts for nothing. You know, it really counts for nothing. You might have picked up some skills, but it's really the way that workplaces are changing so quickly now. You can't rely on things you learned even three years ago or given COVID even, even so, one year ago. So it, it it has to be this sort of real continual learning mindset, doesn't it? A hundred percent. Although I do need to confess, and this is going to show how sometimes I still quite feel quite vulnerable about the fact that I failed my HSC, is I have attempted an MBA now for seven years. Mm -hmm. And it's really weird that my psyche has been so affected by my years in high school that a university degree qualifies me to tell me I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Now, you would think after 25 years in leadership, I've got enough skills to say, yeah, I think, Susanna, you know what you're doing here. And all the stuff that I've achieved and the legacy and the amazing work that um, I've been part of, but I am still craving this piece of paper to validate what I've done. And I think, I wish, I hope in the future that that mindset and bias no longer exists in our young people. But Mm. to think here's a 50-year-old woman that has had success, Mm. still craves that bit of paper to justify that actually you do know what you're doing. And Mm. on that point, I think universities need to sit up and pay attention because the experiences I have with university education as a mature person that has got experience is so antiquated and not on point with the real life. Yeah. So university students that are young and come out, you know, they're they're forming their opinions on this theory mm. conducted by an academic mm. with all due respect that may not have relative experience. That's a that's a problem. Yeah, very much so. And it really is going to have to shake up how degrees happen. And I think ultimately it will probably be smaller, faster pieces of, uh, you mm. know, what they call micro-credentials or whatever, yes. where, yeah. you know, where you need certain technical skills, you learn it quickly in a, in a, in a very fast way. But the thought of, you know, putting down years, uh, you really have to answer, you really have to think, you know, will this make a big difference sort of thing. Yeah. The micro-credential um, piece of work has been something that Y has invested in over the last 12 months solidly. So at the, with COVID emerging, unemployment and underemployment of young people with that high skill technically but cannot get the job and then do alternative work. We've got this beautiful bit of paper and a you know a hex fee, but they actually can't get the job. Why is there a disconnect there? So that micro-credential approach is absolutely the solution. And we've got some really exciting um, work that we're doing at the moment about how do we fill that gap between what transition out of school to opportunities, study, volunteering, you know, testing the waters with some small bursts of um, um, skills. Yes, there's definitely something there, but I'm not too sure who's going to answer that question. We're trying to answer it and solve it um, at the Y, but we'll see how we go. You mentioned uh, your time at Qantas. You took on lots Mm -hmm. of different roles and you were prepared to take risks and a bit scary at the time, but you really learned a lot in doing that. What were there any other key elements you took away from your time at Qantas? Twenty-one years, because it's a fair while. It is a fair whack, isn't it? Oh, there's so many things that I there. There's so many moments that I still reflect on that were significant times that I learnt more about myself, which then obviously comes out in your leadership. Um, I think probably one of the biggest things I learnt was to back myself. Uh, it's quite easy to de-qualify yourself really quickly and say, yeah, I can't, I actually, I don't think that's me, you know, 
why are you even looking at me? Please go away. But I think over the time, um, actually, I changed that. When I left Qantas and I looked back, I realised I should have backed myself more with more things that I could have done at Qantas. Mm. And I think I limited myself too much there. I don't know if it was the culture or sometimes the environment around me, but I definitely look back on that period and think, I should have done a lot more. I should have been in in more roles of influence. And fortunately, since then, I feel that that recognition and that opportunity has definitely been enabled for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, you know, the things that happen at Qantas are unrepeatable yeah. in terms of crisis and industrial relation environment and product advancement um, and customer experience off the charts Mm. and then constant, you know, rebounding and crisis and whatnot. That 21 years was, you know, the the blueprint for me. Mm. Mm. And what led to you leaving after being there for that long? That's an interesting question because it. I think I'd, I'd started to look more broadly and say, Am I going to be, you know, sometimes referred to as a lifer and be there until I get the golden handshake? And I think I was in my, yeah, must be my early 40s at the time. I knew that if I didn't make a change then and and back myself and look for something different, then I don't think I ever would have done it. I think I would have stayed and just kept moving through it. There were other uh, factors. One is that there was a leadership change. You know, people often say that. Um, You know, sometimes people leave because of leadership. I have to say that two very, very significant people for me that were advocates, more than two, I should say, advocates supported me, pushed me, were leaving the organisation, and there were a couple of more key influences to my to my professional world that were also leaving. Mm. And I could see what was emerging as the new leadership. And actually, I felt it was going back to the old style of Qantas that I didn't really enjoy. And mm. at that point, I thought, I've had the best. Mm. I need to leave now. Mm. And I never forget that day. I was literally sitting around in the garden on a milk crate as my husband was cleaning <laughs> up the garden, Bradley, the famous Bradley. And I, I said to him, you know what? I, I don't think I'm going to stay. And he was like, <laughs> What? what do you mean? And I said, no, I think this is it. I'm tapping out. And he went, okay, what are you going to do? And I went, I think I'm going to give that master's thing a go. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, was, it that po- was it at that point that you went to Etihad as well? Yeah. So, yeah, so that was obviously a massive decision, like leaving <laughs> the family, going correct. to Abu Dhabi. What, uh, what made you make that leap? Again, I feel like it's those things that happen in my life that you I don't orchestrate. You get, you know, that with LinkedIn now, you get all these, you know, fantastic because I've had jobs through this, um, LinkedIn message and you sort of think, ah, that's not real, that's not real. Um, and it was from Etihad and one of the talent people over there. Um, and I thought, oh, oh, I'll see what this is all about. So by then I decided I was leaving Qantas. So I don't think I did anything on LinkedIn, but word spread really quickly. It was remarkable. So I responded, went, oh, yeah, I'll have a chat with you. And the short of it is, um, you know, within two months, I spent two months after Qantas, back and forth to Canberra, getting everything signed off from the the embassy down there for the UAE. And before you know it, I'm on a plane to um, Abu Dhabi with 48 hours on the ground for three interviews. Remarkably, the last interview I wasn't meant to have. I literally was walking out the door trying to, you know, take the jacket off and not have all this sweat on me again. And the security guy says to me, Susanna LeBron? And I went, yes. He said, "Um, could you just wait here? Someone wants to see you. And this person came out and said, someone in the corridors mentioned you were here. We're looking for someone in this role. We haven't advertised. While you're here, do you want to have a chat? And that was the job I got. 
Wow. That's what you call uh, fate, isn't it? It, really, it is. really is. And, and what was that like to, you know, be in a leader in a different culture, um, a long way from home, mm. and you've also got, you know, your family, yeah. your husband and your... Two uh, young children, yeah. Children. So Siana and Isaiah, I think, were 10 and 8 at the time from memory. Um, and my husband, he was fortunate enough, very supported by Australia Post, to get um, uh, two years' leave without pay. Pay was granted immediately mm-hmm. to support me moving over. I went over for six weeks first to set us up and then go over. Look, I think um, in my work life professionally, I was very well respected and regarded because Qantas gives you that that door open. And so I was, they eagerly wanted to get from me a lot of information. So very well supported. Culturally, there was definitely some balancing acts. And that's just about respecting the culture you're in. Even in Australia, you know, if you're in someone's home with a certain culture, it's about understanding and respecting that. So I was quite okay with that and actually really excited to be part of a different culture. Um, I think personally, though, the environment in the UAE has got some differences. And for me and for my husband who came from South Africa during apartheid, very difficult world for him to grow up in, um, he he struggled with the class. It reminded him too much of what he'd experienced growing up. And so, unfortunately, we made a decision that unless all of us were happy, we, 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 we leave. And so after a year, we could not see that this would work for us as a family. And so they left after a year and then I left six months later. Mm. So, but, but that being said, the most remarkable experience as a family unit to connect, yeah. find your resilience, children learning a new culture and adapting. Um, and so I don't begrudge the time. And I think Etihad really, again, opened another door for me to come home. If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress. And this provides easy to follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture Checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. What did you learn from that time over there? You mentioned, you know, mm. the family and, and the bonding side of things. What about from a work and leadership perspective? What did you bring back from there? Well, as a, you know, the reality is when you're working in a culture um, like that, uh, you can have a perception about being a woman as a leader. Mm. I did not sense that. It was quite interesting. I actually felt a higher level of respect as a woman that had experience to bring to the table, especially with the Emiratis and the Emirati men. Mm. Um, Very diverse expat community, very orientated to the English and American Canadian Australian and New Zealand community Um, and then you had a lot of people from you know uh, India and Pakistan and Nepal Uh, I think as a leader 
it really, you shone when you took true consideration of the diversity and actually uh, leveraged off that diversity. Because at the end of the day, the customer base in that industry is diverse. Mm. And that's from someone that can afford to fly first class to someone that's traveling home for two weeks to mm. seeing their family once every two years. So for me as a leader in that environment, it really was centered around respecting the diversity of experience as well as culture, because unless you dealt with the cultural differences, you weren't going to get much traction on anything else. Very mm. hierarchical organization. Um, which was a little bit unfamiliar to me after Qantas. And so I had to learn very quickly how to work that stakeholder piece um, in and around working up, working down, working across, probably a lot sharper and more structured than I've had before. So Mm. picking that up pretty quickly was to my advantage. Yeah. Mm. You also then had some roles in the public sector. So, you know, you had (laughs) a lot of time in the private sector and then to the public sector. How did you find that transition? The transition I was excited about and I was excited because I had the benefit of um, being employed by Tim Reardon who really set the tone of the opportunity in public sector for someone for me coming into and wanting me to influence and be able to contribute to the future of the public sector as an individual, but also the work that I would do in the in the part of the business I was in. So I was energised and excited coming in, but realised really quickly that just the vocabulary, the <laughs> way of, of doing paperwork. Acronyms. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, I, I'm going to be cheeky and, you know, whether you need to edit this one out or not, Graham, but I sat at the table at an executive meeting, uh, third one in, third week in, and my general counsel, amazing woman, was sitting beside me and she said, you just might want to pick your chin up, Susanna. I went, what? And she goes, yeah, um, Utopia, third episode, season one, have all the answers for you. And I thought, (laughs) oh, my God. So, look, respect to public sector because, hello, they churn. They get us going. They they do what we need to do. And this state is absolutely smashing it. And I'm more. I'm I'm actually more proud I am now as a citizen than probably I was when I was actually working in the in the environment. But I think we've got a little bit more to go in public sector mm. with with mm. respect to everyone. I've, we've got more to do. And I think part of that is actually a bit of PR mm. and a, a true connection with community, a true connection with the customer. Mm. Um, and I'd hoped to be able to do that. And I think I got a little bit of a way, but unfortunately, there are other parts of public sector that jockey around it and you sometimes have to ebb and flow with that. And I thought, I don't know if this is what I can keep doing. Mm. So, But it was amazing to come out of that into this because, again, it's like this build is happening. Mm. I think I'm hearing, actually, you know, when you do these types of conversations, you start to realise, actually, Susanna, there was a build. Mm. And to coming into this space now, it was like the accumulation of everything. Yeah. Yeah. When you think about great teams now, no matter where you've worked, no matter what industry, what do you think are the really common elements of great teams? So if I think about my team right now, and this is rare, and I think anyone that's a people leader, you have those moments when you look around the room and you think, I've got the A team. There is nothing else that could happen right now that could improve this situation. Um, One of the things I talk about, about success in a team, what it looks like, what it feels like, is that you are linked, you know, um, uh, hypothetically, uh, what do you call it, virtually, you're linked Mm. and your armour is solid together and you, you present that. You present that externally, you present that internally and it is powerful and people look at it and realise 
This is a well-synchronised, focused team. Mm. Um, but you can still have that moment of play and fun and vulnerability and disagreement and heated arguments and know that you're psychologically safe. Mm. And I'm really proud when I have a team member that says to me, I feel safe to be myself, to challenge, to feel like I can fail and not be judged. But I also know if I'm in the thick of it, I've got this group around me that are going to absolutely come in and bolster me. So mm. that that's probably success for me to, as a team. But the, the real key in that is I always want to feel safe myself, but I would want my team to feel safe in all aspects of the work that they're doing. Yeah. It's really interesting what you uh, spoke about there because in the last um, 18 months, I've probably done 150 webinars, you know, about workplaces and about individual resilience, but also about great teams. And so I asked people to really reflect on a great team. Could have been, you know, you know, netball, footy, McDonald's, this job, previous role. And what was it that made a difference? And um, and always the number one thing is we had each other's back. That's yeah. the uh, and that's what you're talking about having that synchronicity. Um, and then it's usually that we really enjoyed ourselves, that we had fun, and and or safe. Sometimes those those two swap around. Um, and and then the fourth one tends to be you know I'm included in decisions and part of that decisions. But it, it is pretty remarkable, isn't it? You know when we talk about um, you know, education and its role in developing leaders and in things. Like no one talks about scores in my university days or doing this subject. The thing that they remember is, you know, just having really good relationships with those around them, mm. having uh, common goals and uh, and also complementary strengths. And uh, mm. yeah, so it's quite interesting that, uh, you know, what you nominated is what I've been Finding coming up virtually in everything regarding teams, and I think I think COVID has really contributed to that because it's ramped up the speed in organisations, mm. ramped up the change, ramped up the digitisation, all that sort of stuff. And mm. you just can't know all the answers. You know, you have to be able to you know consult with the right people to make it happen. I'm a, a bit of a fan of um, Ray Dalio, who's a you know a very successful hedge hedge fund manager overseas and he's done a TED talk and it's something along the lines of how to have how to have a company where the best ideas win <laughs> and ah. he talks about and he, in a TED talk you can see about it he talks about a remarkable process where everyone um, rates ideas rates other people's um, thoughts and ideas and you know a 23 year old can rate Ray Dalio, who's a billionaire, basically, but it, but it is all about being able to have robust discussions, being able to bounce off each other, to come up with the you know the best idea based on who we've got here. And uh, I think um, one thing that I do remember about working, um, you know, in the public sector is there is that hierarchical environment, and I think that's probably one of the things that they should try and shift a little bit more because when you open the door for anyone to be at the table and they are the most, you know, experienced and the one that's got the passion to deliver the message. And I do recall that was probably what I did just because that's what I do. If if someone comes into me and they're part of the, the, the project and I can see, wow, you're the person to actually present this, it's not, I'll bookend it a bit to give them a safe place. But I say, no, this is the person. And I actually was challenged a few times. 
Oh, Susanna, but that's um, you know, that's a, a you know, a, 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 an advisor role or someone in a, you know a role down here, so to speak. Yeah, but that's the person that should be sitting at the table. And I have always believed in that. Who is the best person that should be engaging with us right now to challenge, to deliver the message, to contribute? It is not based on your title or the years mm. of experience. And I think when you talk about young people, there can be that bias where you think, oh, yeah, but you've not, you've only just come in. Well, they're probably the ones that are going to have the most broadest creative mind because they haven't mm. had anything else tarnish it. So I, I do believe that that is absolutely another team quality where you can ensure that the team isn't represented by hierarchy but is represented by the best people depending on the situation at hand. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's very very true, and and I remember reading a story. It was in the Financial Review, and it was about Qantas, where they were trying to work out who were the most influential people and trusted people in Qantas, and and so they had to be trusted. They had to um, have a reputation for getting things done, and and apparently the guy, the person with the highest rating was a guy called Elvis in the in the warehouse. You know, and all the, um, and you can probably find it just by Googling Qantas trusted Elvis. <laughs> but but uh, I just found that really remarkable that um, he was incredibly influential. He was really trusted and he could get things done. And when you're going through change, change processes, those people are so important, aren't they, to, uh, you know, to lead by example and to help make things happen. Yeah. I, I recently um, was interviewed. Um, it was, I'm not too sure if it's the, it was the weekend edition of the Finn Re- Review, their, their magazine. I can't remember, sorry, and I feel awful not remembering what it is now. But I was asked, you know, what was someone that has been a key influencer to my life? And, you know, I think there's people underestimate the person that immediately supports you, especially as a CEO, you know, is either your EA, your EO, whatever that chief of staff, whatever that role is. They are a trusted advisor. They are that have got their eye on everything and they know what it is that ticks the boxes for you and your strength as well as your areas of weakness. And so I think that's a really important exercise when an organisation identifies who's the key influencer, who's the person actually can cut through as well as when you're in your own role. Like who is the person that I'm going to actually have right beside me and is going to nudge me and say, no, 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 don't look at that. You need to focus on this. Um, that, that's where I find there's a lot of strength in relationships, not just team, but in, you know, individuals that might support you as well as a leader. Yeah, when um, you think about the important lessons you've learned about leadership, you've already mentioned a couple of people that mm. were, you know, good leaders along the way. Were you also influenced at all by any books or, you know, any particular view that really, really... Uh-huh. Um, I, yeah, I'm a fan of Juliet Burke, who previously was with um, Deloitte. Um, actually, I just literally just purchased her. I'm a, I like a book. I don't like technical stuff. I like a book so I can write and do things. I've just res- uh, purchased her recent edition um, of uh, Two Minds, I think it's called. I'm going to be terrible and not remember the title, but around unconscious bias. So all of that is really super important to me about where do people naturally go because of either influences, learnings or, you know, being brought up um, and all that plays a part in how you lead um, mm. and people can be really traditional and people can be really, you know, softer and emotional. Um, that, that All those types of readings, I do like 
Simon Sinek just to get that provocative thinking going. I think everyone likes a little bit of Simon Sinek. Mm. Um, I often enjoy Harvard Business Reviews Mm. and I think when I do put my mind to my studies and actually put the effort in to do my research properly, so I'm doing proper theory responses, academic responses, I do enjoy getting some of that, those readings. But to be honest, I, I just love listening to these types of conversations. Um, you know, you can get caught up in social media, but there's some really cool stuff where people just offload and share um, mm. and exp- storytelling, you know, storytelling is mm-hmm. so powerful. Yeah, and we just started this uh, podcast in February and mm-hmm. we're really delighted it's now in the top 10 in the management ca- category in, in um, Apple, Apple's management category. Well done. Yeah, thank you. And, it, and it's being listened to in 26 countries. So it is amazing, isn't it, just it how is. things can spread, good ideas can, uh, mm. can really make a difference. Mm. It really is. What do you do for your own self-care? Susanna, on a different uh, Okay, so at the moment, not a lot because I'm doing ridiculous hours because I've got time-critical work that I just, it's all growth and opportunity and I love shiny, bright and glass, you know, full stuff. So I will really put my mind to things like this. Um, I very much, my mental well-being is achieved through um, exercise mm-hmm. and that's running. And that's a choice between sometimes putting the headset on to get some music into my head and enjoy that. Um, But other times it's actually not. And allowing my mind to escape and actually role model out conversations that I've had or I'm about to have to prepare myself for what others might say or engage with me. It's the weirdest thing, but it's a combination of letting my mind flow actually releases stress in my body while I'm running. Um, So I run most days. Uh, Before COVID, my husband and I used to do yoga once a week, which I thought was really good, and I'm getting into it now that I'm getting a bit older. Um, And, I look, to me, just chilling out and hanging out with my family when my children, 17 and 15, want to hang out. So we're watching Hunger Games at the moment for the second time. That's precious two hours that my children are giving me. So I'll sit there and watch it. Um, but other than that, you know, just what I think what we all enjoy is just each other's company um, and and sitting and having a good meal or having a conversation. But really about if I can get exercise in every day or every other day, it really gives me the energy but also the right mental space to handle the challenges ahead. Yeah. Mm. What are the uh, big challenges you have at the wine now? Uh, probably the biggest challenges is being able to remain relevant in a very, very quick changing environment for the young people that we engage with. I'm proud that we have been very successful in remaining relevant through digital improvements like we've really moved from face-to-face programs and services to online and we're actually getting a lot more responses so we're going to keep that as an ongoing um, engagement piece. I I think the other challenge for me to put it bluntly is um, part of my business is completely absent in the government's uh, mind and that is around community recreation and fitness to your question earlier about what keeps me healthy mm. we have a lot of people in communities that come to recreation and fitness I'm not talking the f45s of the world I'm talking your community you know sports hall and fitness gyms that are not flash but people come there to connect and they come there to do a class or um, rehabilitation or require it for their own ability health mm. that is non-existent and unfortunately the struggle I've got right now 
is I'm concerned that the government, again, is going to be silent on that. It's going to leave a whole bucket load of community members, again, on the back foot. Mm. Um, so that's that's the priority at the moment. I know it's immediate. It's a very BAU tactical response. Mm. Uh, but I also think regionally, um, for us, the focus is on making sure that where an opportunity for a Y to be out there regionally is super important because we have got that diverse offering in community. Yeah. Mm. Can you think a time when you've asked someone, are you okay, and it was really landed, it was really very appropriate? I would say probably this morning I asked my, yes, one of my team members is moving on to another role and, you know, you just see in the face that there's something that's not right there. But actually I'm I'm doing it pretty tough at the moment with a lot of work and I've had two of my team ask me today, before anything, they just looked at me and they said, you know what's difficult in these little boxes? But mm-hmm. they could see there was something, either it was in my eyes or my demeanour. Um, I think more than ever, Graham, people are a lot more comfortable to ask it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot more um, interaction, not just with asking the question, but a real desire to find, well, what can I do for you? Or, you know, I say to people, you know, just give me a call, you know, if you need anything. And then I've dropped that down now and said, you know what? If you don't feel like talking to me, just send me a text. Just let me know how's it going. A text is okay if you don't feel like you want to talk to me. Mm. Yeah, it is uh, one of the things I've observed about this most recent lockdown is that managers and leaders are are finding it pretty tough. You know, it's uh, they've been pretty focused on trying to, you know, facilitate a cohesive team and a connected team, and there's been lots of challenges, but it's um, just some of the questions I get. I think there are lots of managers who have sort of run their own tank dry a bit, and, uh, yeah, I think it's it's a wake-up call, I think, because yes. it's, so, it's so wonderful that you have a culture where that happens, you know, where a couple of your team members ask you that because, um, yeah, it, it can be just very, very challenging when the work is long and, and I think... Um, where there's no direct path out or you, things aren't going to be normal in three weeks or five weeks or <laughs> a year. You know, there'll be certainly easier things, but we just don't know exactly how it's going to play out. And so just right. having that um, what I call a we care mindset in a, in a team, um, you know, just makes that a very comfortable thing to do. So I think it's a wonderful sign that, um, you know, people do that and, and do did reach out to you. Yeah, I mean, this morning... I think just because of lack of sleep and a lot of really time pressures on and, and and you know, it's often said that CEOs is the, lo- the CEO role is one of the loneliest roles you ever do. And so you have to find really good network around you to be able to bounce around and share when you're not feeling crash hot. But I feel that I have the ability when I need to, to share with my team that it, I'm not doing too well, you know. And this morning I just said to them, I'm sorry, I'm just going to tell you now. I may use words that aren't as nice as they need to be, not swearing words, but just really punchy words um, to the point where I said, no fluff to my corporate affairs team. Well, you never say that to your corporate affairs team when they're trying to do some amazing work for you. And they were tired. And I just had to put a, a little asterisk to the front and say, guys, I am exhausted. I'm tired. I'm not at my best. And up front, I'm going to apologize because I feel that I might rub you the wrong way on a few things I might say when we get through this piece of work. But I'm, this is where I'm at. So just excuse me if I say things that I wouldn't normally say and just calling it at the front. Mm. Um, so you can have a, not a laugh, but you can just allow myself to relax a little bit because I'm not performing on all cylinders, so to speak. 
When you uh, think about the introvert, extrovert spectrum, mm-hmm. what side of that do you think you're on? Oh, I think people would probably say I'm an extrovert, but I actually do like to be on my own. I don't mind going to a, a restaurant and eating on my own or sitting and having, you know, a beer at a pub and, and on my own. I don't mind just being by myself. I don't know if that's the definition of an introvert, but I enjoy my own time because I don't get a lot of it. And um, But I know that I love people. I love interacting and hearing stories and engaging with people, and I think that's a, a side of me that is an extrovert, feel comfortable to do it. I think just about every CEO I've interviewed for this podcast has said the same thing. <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> that, you know, they do, they've learned how to be an extrovert and there's times where that's really important. But, mm. you know, the, I guess the, the the definition comes, how do you recharge? Yeah. And, um and some people, my mother's one of them, she recharges by talking to lots of people, talking to people in bed, you know. But, oh. but, but uh, you know, most of the people that I've had on here do talk about, you know, being by themselves or with loved ones, as, and that's really the way mm. that makes a really big difference for them. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up today, Suzanne. I can't believe how quickly the time's come. I've really loved uh, your enthusiasm, your passion, what you've learnt, um, you know, from the various organisations, the Qantas, the Etihads, the public sector, and now in this role, and um, and also, you know, the vulnerability that you've shared that, uh, you know, it's been tough for you uh, because lots of things to do, sleep's affected, all that sort of thing. What uh, would you do or say if you could go back to your 17-year-old self when you had a backpack and you were literally moving between three homes what advice would you go back and give to that 17-year-old Susanna LeBron? <laughs> um, you are going to do good things in your life. You may not feel it now, but you are going to be part of an amazing journey and you're going to meet the most amazing people, but back yourself. Mm. Mm. Great advice, great mm. advice. An absolute pleasure having you here, Susanna. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Graeme. It's been, I've loved it. It's been fantastic to talk about, you know, the years that I've journeyed through. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable WeCare mental health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Thanks for joining us.